Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 57 of the Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with Megan Xavier about the current data encryption fight between Apple and the FBI and why it should matter to lawyers. Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio. Lawyers, it's time to let your mind do what it was trained to do, practice law. You need Clio, the leading legal practice management software to help take care of the business side of running your practice. Find out more and sign up for a free trial at Clio.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones so we don't have to worry about getting interrupted when we're being productive here at Lawyerist, and we love the job they do. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. If you enjoy our show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast to help us keep new episodes coming every week. So, Aaron, my favorite news out of the last week or so, um, during which I've mostly been laid up with a fever. Yeah, you sound terrible. I know. I'm sorry. I'm like a Canadian goose or something. Um, But my favorite news that's come out the last couple weeks is, so 50 Cent, the rapper, is uh, apparently in bankruptcy, and he's providing an object lesson of uh, why you should stay away from social media when you've got an active court case. So, he's going around and posting literally buckets of cash on his Instagram pages, um, his Instagram feed. And he's got a freezer full of cash. He's got cash all over the floor. He's got cash tucked into his the fly of his jeans. Um, it's just cash everywhere. And so th- the judge finally said, dude, you need to come explain the cash because it doesn't sound like you're bankrupt. Yeah, I just opened the link to these photos and they are incredible. It's like stacks and stacks and stacks of $100 bills stuffed in his freezer. I mean, he does seem to have like a significant portion of the U.S. Treasury's stockpile in his house. Yeah, actually. And these, and these don't look like garbage bins. They're like paint pals, pails, as though he's going to like bury this in his backyard or something. I wonder how much, like, let's say it's all fake cash. Like, how oh, it's much? It's definitely not. You can see, you can see like the hologram st- stamps on the money and stuff. All right. Yeah, this is for real, real. Maybe he's holding it for a friend. Wow. Yeah, I don't think you should do that. I mean, one of them, he actually spells out the word broke in stacks of $100 bills. (laughs) I think he's just trolling the court, and I'm not really sure why and what he hopes to get out of it, but it's kind of funny. Because presumably they're going to make him turn over the cash. Oh, one would think so. Yeah, and you don't get to like, you don't get to back out of bankruptcy once you filed right so um so it's it's hard to imagine what good could come of this but and he's gonna have to sign some affidavits about how much money he has and you, <laughs> right. you would likely want to tell the truth about that yeah it'll be interesting i i have no idea oh i do see one photo where his hands it clearly shows that underneath the hundred dollar bills are a bunch of ones <laughs> okay, this is totally irrelevant to law practice. Has but, nothing but to do with solo and small firm practice. Sort of law. It is law related. Yeah. Okay. I feel good about it then. Lawyerist is now a celebrity legal news website, as it should have been all along. So, on that bombshell, <laughs> here's my conversation with Megan. 
I'm Megan Xavier, and I am an ethics attorney. I practice primarily in the state bar court in California, and I consult um, in other states as well. I'm actually located in Georgia and admitted in New York and New Jersey. So I, I also write a lot about ethics and other topics of the day, primarily on lawyerists. Now, uh, Megan, how did you, one of the things I've been curious about with you is how did you develop such a multi-state practice? Well, apparently I had itchy feet for many years because I moved like crazy. I was born and raised in California and I started law school in Connecticut, but then went back to California and that's where I graduated. My first job was in New York, but while I was still in California, I thought I may as well take the bar exam, so I did. Then I was clerked in New York thinking I'd go back to California, and instead I practiced there for many years um, in New York and in New Jersey, so I had to take those bar exams as well. Then I moved back to California and eventually to Australia, and we just kind of kept bouncing around. And Wait, how many um, states are you licensed in? In four. Okay. California, New York, New Jersey, and Georgia. Wow. And I don't want any more. No more bar exams, no more CLE requirements. Um, so then we ended up in Georgia, which is, like, we're planted now. We finally stopped bouncing around. But as I moved, I had gotten involved with ethics work, which was really not what I did in New York. I was a big law securities litigator. Um, and I, when I got into ethics work, I started working in California because that was where my first case was. And it just really developed there. They have their own state bar court. And so there's really this whole system in place and a small defense bar that all interact with each other. And so even though I then went to Sydney, Australia, and now Atlanta, Georgia, I've continued the practice primarily in California just because of where it's been built. So how do you, how do you get clients in all those different states? How does that work out? Well, I sit on um, the solo and small firm executive committee um, in California, and that has sort of solidified my involvement with the state there. Do you fly so back and even forth a fair amount? I, a fair amount. I try to minimize it just because I do have a life outside of airplanes. <laughs> um, but, but a lot of my actual client work, I don't have to go there for because the state bar court usually allows appearances by phone, and I do a fair amount of limited scope representation where I assist lawyers who are going through the disciplinary process, but they remain self-represented at the court. So I do that as a way to help lawyers who otherwise can't afford representation to at least have some help through the process. That's interesting. And then when I do go, it tends to be more for state bar um, executive committee matters than it does for client work. I suppose uh, lawyers are in some ways the ideal candidate for limited scope representation. Well, they are because they can do this. Yeah. But, you know, with disciplinary matters, it's so emotional. You just naturally get so defensive having someone tell you that what you did to your client amounted to moral turpitude, um, that you can't do it alone in an effective way. But you really can be given the tools by someone who's not emotional and run with it to go make your own appearances and do a lot of the work yourself. So that's all cool and very interesting. Um, now maybe we should shift gears to talk about what brings us here today, which is we wanted to kind of uh, take a look, a closer look at this Apple FBI business and break it down for our listeners who um, some people seem to get it, some people don't. Um, you know, I, th- I feel like it's a no-brainer. Um, but you recently published uh, an article on Lawyerist about why lawyers should have Apple's back. And I, I told, 
I totally agree with that. I'm not usually the one to jump in, you know, defending the corporation. I think they generally uh, look out for themselves. But this is definitely an area where I think it makes sense for us to try and get Apple's back. So, um, why don't you give us the, the sort of the background? What's going on here and, and why should we care about it? Okay. Well, one thing to, to mention sort of at the outset that you just alluded to is this is an issue that is making some very strange bedfellows. You have people um, agreeing with Apple who generally view Apple as this terrible and huge organization that is out there to steal all of our private data. Um, and so and it's really odd for some people to feel as you were just saying, oh, I'm, I'm siding with the corporation. That's odd. Yeah. And, and although it, you should, it should probably be pointed out that Apple is the, the one of the big technology companies that doesn't appear to care a whole lot about our information. They're not like Google where they're selling ads on it. Well, that is true. Although there's functions in our iPhones to track where we've been and well, how, you know, our frequently visited addresses, things like that, where people start to go, ooh, don't like that big brother aspect. Totally. So it is kind of unusual for some of us to be siding with them. There's also people that I've heard from who say um, that certain politicians have stood up in defense of Apple. And here the, the person who's contacting me says, wow, I agreed with him. I never agree with him. He's my political opposite. So there's a lot of interesting things going on with Apple, this Apple matter where we're finding ourselves agreeing with parties we wouldn't normally. But to sort of break it down from what's going on, um, what Apple has been ordered to do here is to assist in hacking into Syed Farouk's phone. And Syed Farouk is the, the one of the two terrorists who killed 14 people in San Bernardino in December. And it was him and his wife who were the, the two terrorists. Now, his phone wasn't even owned by him. It was owned by his employer, which was the county of San Bernardino. So he doesn't actually have a privacy interest in that phone. And I don't hear anyone out there saying, oh, this terrorist privacy should be protected. So that's not where we're going with the privacy angle. The hacking into his phone isn't about we should protect his data. The hacking in comes in the fact that Apple has to be developing something new in order for that hack to happen. Now, when we talk about a hack, it's not, um, it's not really brain surgery. We can all understand what it is. If you pull out your iPhone and you have the four-digit passcode on it, if you enter it incorrectly 10 times, your phone gets wiped. You can, you can turn that off. I've turned mine off because there's a really good chance my six-year-old who's gotten very curious about my iPhone will try and enter it six times or ten times. <laughs> yes, it happens. We hear of toddlers doing it. Um, we hear of people doing it because they were kind of groggy and they're, they were trying to wake up. Yeah. And, oh, why is my phone laughing? And they kept hitting it wrong. So it does happen, but you can turn it off. But if you don't turn it off, and you enter the code wrong, it'll wipe the phone. Which so, is bad news if you're the FBI and you're basically trying to do, um, you know, the same thing you might do with an old one of those dial padlocks and just start at zero 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 and work your way through it. Exactly. By the time they get to zero zero one zero, kaboom! There's nothing left on the phone. Mm-hmm. So um, apparently, the city of San Bernardino could have set up the phone differently so that this wouldn't happen, but they didn't do that. So now our terrorist is dead. No one knows his code, and, and the FBI would like to see what's on the phone. What's on the phone that they care about is going to be from about mid-October to the attacks, because they have an iCloud backup of everything before that. 
So they're only talking about maybe six weeks worth of data they're curious about. And what they want Apple to do and what the court has ordered Apple to do is to create a new version of the operating system that does not have the automatic wiping of the phone after 10 tries. And they want them to install that operating system on this particular phone so that the FBI can try a thousand codes until they get to the right one and can see what's on the phone. So it's it's not it's it's almost that they're they're asking Apple to make it easier for them to try to brute force the pin to the phone is what they're really asking for. Right. They're asking Apple to create a safety net so that when they're doing a diamond at the brute force to get into the phone, they can't blow it up. Yep. But what Apple would be creating is something that could be used again on another phone where the person's privacy interest maybe is there. Maybe, you know, it could be any of us. And this is part of the, the privacy concern. This could happen again later. If well, Apple has created it, then it exists and could be used again. Well, and let's be clear, um, it's the news has come out in the last couple of days that there are something like 14 other court cases where the FBI is asking for access similarly. Um, and somebody uh, just confirmed that there are hundreds of other um, devices, Apple devices that they would like to get cracked in this way. So it's it's not even theoretical. The FBI is actively trying to get this so that it can use it on multiple phones. And that isn't really very surprising. Is no. it? I mean, we <laughs> all thought that as soon as, as soon as the FBI came out and said that they want this and they start backpedaling, oh, but it's only for this phone, but hell, you know, we're not, we don't even need it ourselves. Apple, you can keep the technology. We only want it for this one phone. I don't think anyone believes them. No. And, and so what you're saying, you know, that, <laughs> that goes right along with it. And, and, you know, in support of the FBI when they, and the DOJ, when they're saying those things, the order that came down actually is only for that phone. But of course, it's to create something that we all know can be used again. Well, and this sort of, this is the bigger debate about encryption, right? Is that um, when when Snowden, when Ed Snowden was, uh, re- told, showed all of us how deeply into our stuff the FBI and the NSA are, um, and companies like Google and Apple were like, well, that kind of hurts our business because we, this isn't how we, we we can't do business with the EU, for example, because this doesn't comply with their privacy laws. I mean, it kind of screws everything up. So Apple kind of took the lead and started locking down devices. So the, the information on your iPhone is incredibly secure. Even Apple can't get it. Um, now, if you're backing it up to iCloud or you're syncing it up to iCloud, you can get that information. Apple can get that information off of iCloud. But it, I, I also read that um, they are looking at encrypting that with zero knowledge so that the information in iCloud would also be beyond Apple's reach. Um, there's really been sort of a <laughs> government versus Silicon Valley kind of a thing going on here where um, because encryption works, encryption absolutely works and the right to be secure in in our things and, and have privacy, this is the only way to do it online is to have encryption that can't be easily broken. And that that's what Apple has been doing. And Android has been doing it to a lesser extent. Um, um, and, and I think that's sort of the backdrop for what's happening here. And uh, the, this face-off is really, does should the FBI, should the government always have the right to break into things 
no matter where they are or what they are. And obviously the government thinks that it should. And <laughs> I find, I, I find it particularly compelling, um, that the government put in its recent motion to compel. Um, this is a motion that, that the DOJ filed last Friday after the order came down, um, ordering Apple to create this product. Apple hadn't filed anything, but it had put up a public letter on its website in which it said, we are not going to comply. And so that, that prompted the DOJ to actually file a motion to compel um, uh, compliance with the order. So in that motion, the DOJ says, Apple has attempted to design and market its product to allow technology rather than the law to control access to data, which has been found by this court to be warranted for an important investigation. And I read that and I thought, well, yes, of course it has, because it's not for the government to decide. You know, we, sh- we should be able to have private data. And its attitude expressed in that opening is, no, we aren't supposed to have any privacy. And I find that really concerning. Yeah, it's, it's almost, uh, if there is data, we should be able to get to it with a warrant at least. Right. So we're going to take about two minutes here from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back to talk about more. Today, we journey to the center of a lawyer's mind. This is Jeff. I'm stepping into his brain now. Jeff's brain is working on the case of a lifetime. Unfortunately, it's distracted with scheduling issues, documents, and timesheets. We need to act fast. I'm giving Jeff Clio, the cloud-based system that manages a lawyer's day-to-day operations. Clio handles your cases, billing, appointments, accounting. Everything you need to run your practice. There, that's better. With Clio, Jeff's brain can focus on what Jeff does best. Get the law practice manager more lawyers trust. Sign up for a free trial at clio.com slash lawyer or call 844-500-CLIO. That's 844-500-CLIO. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already, but when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story, and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers, and I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try, and to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. But since there's no risk, you might as well try. And we're back. Megan, what's the status then? You said there was a motion to compel, and, and let's be clear, we're about six days out from 
the date this will be published. So there could be further developments before uh, this podcast episode is released. But but where are things right now? Well, right now we are anxiously awaiting Apple's response to the motion to compel. And so by the time this is this podcast is out, we will have that response. Um, if it's impossible, we can have a ruling on that. Um, more likely than not, it'll be um, still in the briefing stage. But it's today that Apple is to file its response to the motion to compel. Is this some? This kind of feels like um, an example of the courts just not getting it. But but maybe it really is about how deeply should the government be able to go? Is is that what we're fighting about here, or is it something else? Well, I think that the court is taking a very myopic view of this. Um, the order is written so specifically to this phone that I have to wonder if in issuing the order, the court is really thinking about the public policy implications of it or not. That's not clear. The order is only a very brief three pages um, with lengthy you know, identification information of the phone taking up a lot of that. So there's not a whole lot of view in that order that we can tell what the court is thinking. But we certainly have set up a public policy site. Yeah. I mean, people have been responding to your post, and I've seen elsewhere, they've been pointing out, no, the FBI says that Apple can keep the code, they don't have to share it with the FBI, which is not true. The FBI will have the phone, they can copy the code off the phone. Um, but even if it is true, Apple doesn't have this skeleton key right now. This is an operating system that sort of functions as a skeleton key. Um, it doesn't have it. It's, it hasn't developed it. And, um, or at least we have no reason to think that it's lying when it says that it doesn't have it. And w what the government is asking them to do is to create a skeleton key. It's not just about this phone. It'll never just be about this phone. Um, we know that because the FBI wants it for other phones. But, it, you know, once once you've weakened the encryption by creating something like this, um, then you, you can't you can't put the whatever the cat back in the bag. Right. They can't. And so what they're asking Apple to create um, when they have these, these ideas like, oh, you can keep it, and they try and, like, it's a backpedal, mm -hmm. they try and make it, they try and soften the blow and soften, I, I feel what they're trying to do is soften the public image of the whole thing. Right. Um, I say, oh, Apple, you can keep it, we're not going to try and use this again, it's only for this phone. Well, all of the cases that they cite in their motion to compel as for the proposition that Apple should be forced to comply because this is really no different than all these situations that have happened in the past, those cases are things like landlords providing access to premises, um, phone companies providing the access to, to wiretap someone's phone. They're accessing. You know, the phone company has to give the government access to effectuate its warrant. Well, that's very different than what they're saying here. But if they win now and Apple creates the software, they will be in this position of saying, you already have this tool. We're just asking you to use it to effectuate our warrant. Right. So it's really disingenuous to say we're never going to ask you to use this again. Right. Is there precedent for forcing a company to spend potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on development in order to create a tool for the government to use? I mean... Developing an operating system is not simple, and, and the changes may sound simple, but they might not be, and they'll have to maintain it and update it, and um, it, it just doesn't seem like a small undertaking for Apple to me. 
No, I don't think that it is a small undertaking. Right, and is it, and is it weird to just say you have to do that? Well, I haven't seen any precedent that comes to this anywhere near this magnitude of a task for the party being ordered to comply. And in reading the government's motion to compel, that's certainly where that precedent would be. You know, if it exists, the government's going to be relying on it. And the cases they cite just aren't there. They're really not of any sort of magnitude like this. And when you say how much, you know, the, the amount of resources that would be having to be funneled into this, it comes to mind that these are publicly traded companies, many of them are technology companies that would be forced to comply with this or any future orders just like it. So you're talking about taking shareholder value and diverting it to the government. Hmm. And I think it's really interesting that Bill Gates is one of the only technology people who's come out in favor of the government on this. Yeah, I saw and, that. You know, I was kind of disturbed by the comments I saw, and I felt they were just little snippets, and I would really love to hear more of his thoughts than what the media had reported. Because what I saw was him saying, well, this is just like the phone company being ordered to hand over phone records. And I thought, oh, goodness, no, it is not. It is definitely not just like that. So he's on the board of Microsoft. And as a board member, if his company were subject to an order that would divert let's just say a huge amount of resources. I have no idea the quantity of millions of dollars of resources to a project for the government for which there's no indication that the company would be compensated. If he didn't fight that order, wouldn't that be a breach of his duty to his shareholders? Unless they've already got that tool. Unless they already have it. I mean, it, it, would, is, it sort of suggests to me that Microsoft already has the same thing that Apple's being asked to develop. Oh, that's a very interesting possibility. I haven't thought of that. <laughs> I think, uh, well, definitely hadn't thought of that in that interpretation of what he said. Um, I, I only suspect that because I, I think Microsoft has always been much friendlier with the government on that. And, um, but all, you know, Bill Gates is a really smart guy and I'd like to hear more about what he said too, because he's usually chooses his words very carefully. Um, so I bet there's some nuance in there that we might be missing, but, but yeah, that was my takeaway from it. Um, but maybe I'm just cynical. Well, I think that's a really good point because I did think from you know, the couple sentences I saw quoted, you know, what else did he say? Because that just didn't seem like, but it, some, it seemed like he didn't understand the issue from the quote I saw. And yeah. I don't view him as somebody who wouldn't understand the issue. Yeah, no, I, I am sure he would understand it if he was given enough chance. So, yeah. um, should why should lawyers in particular get behind Apple on this? Well, some of the public... Um, perceptions of this um, entire situation strike me as things where you're getting into sort of the hearts of people and the fears of people without stepping back and analyzing it. And as lawyers, that's our job to step back and analyze things and to analyze the bigger picture, the constitutional picture for one and just the public policy long-term impact for another. And we're sort of uniquely situated to do that. We're um, we are analytical people who do this for a living. And if we step back and let the public know this is the analysis that we see and calm your fears for a moment, yes, this was a terrorist, but, and you sort of lay out for people why this is a bad idea and what the long-range implications are, I think we have a powerful voice in our general community of people to stand up against this. And we can really have a lot of influence over people. Yeah, and it's... it. 
it's really easy to just say, well, terrorists, so the, the government should be able to get whatever they want. I mean, I, I see that again and again, you know, they're terrorists, nothing good. Um, but it's, but it's, it's just not even about that. No, it isn't. And it's also not about, um, getting information that's going to be really valuable to protect all of our security. You know, after 9-11, we all started to give up a lot of basic freedom out of fear. And we all felt, well, if this is going to stop a terror attack, I'll do it. And I'll give up something that I wouldn't have given up before 9-11. So some of the comments I've received from my article on Lawyerist have been, well, this is a terrorist, so I don't care about his privacy. And we talked about that. Mm -hmm. So one of the issues that I've heard raised as an opposition to Apple and support of the government is that the information on this phone perhaps will help save people in the future, that it would somehow be important for stopping the next terrorist attack if we can hack into this phone. And my interest in that subject led me into to get to this motion to compel that we were talking about. And it's actually the reason why I went to read it in depth was I wondered, what does the government think they're going to find on this phone? And there is no indication that they think he was some sort of mastermind for other terror plots and that we're going to uncover them in this phone. The government explained that because of when the iCloud backup was uh, about six weeks or so before the attack, they don't know what exactly he communicated in those other six weeks. And they say, well, we know he was in contact with his wife, who is the other terrorist who is dead. And we know he was in contact with some of the victims who have also passed away. And they want to know what those communications were. That really is just sort of the normal everyday stuff that you try and gather in an investigation. And together can't they get happened. most of that information from other people's phones? It would seem so. You know, there's been no discussion in anything I've seen about where's the wife's phone. Right. You know, if she, was, if she was in contact with her, she should have copies. And the victims, okay, look at their phone. Yeah. So it is, it is really sort of puzzling what the government thinks is so important on this phone. And you ask the question of whether this is a really a small issue or is this actually setting up the, you know, the bigger um, issue here about who's in control of data. And I have to say that you've got to look at the government and say, maybe you are just trying to set up the site because what information you're trying to get doesn't seem that important. And it certainly isn't what some of the public are thinking that if you don't hack in, you won't know about the next attack until it happens. It's just not that. No, and, and you, you don't get to hack in before it happens anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's almost never going to, to happen, I don't think. Well, and Farouk wasn't the mastermind that he had all the, next, the plans for the next attack and, you know, oh, we'll know what it is if we get into the phone. Right. No, I, I, my understanding is there's no indication they were interacting with anyone outside of themselves, basically. They, they were kind of on their own. Right. And in fact, when they say, oh, we know there's something on there, it has to do with the, the Facebook post that they put up some hours before the attack, pledging their allegiance to ISIS. Okay, that that too. You can see it on Facebook. You you've seen it. You right. know what they did. So no, it's not that they were some sort of mastermind. This the the Apple versus the FBI thing is one question. I am I'm still sort of curious. I I think it's weird that there we might be. I'm not sure that it's been true before that we get to have um, complete secrets from law enforcement. I mean, I, I guess there's what's in our head, but um, but I, I don't think we've ever 
we've had the ability to just lock down information away from law enforcement. If you put it in a safe, safes can be cracked. Um, but in, but encryption is potentially um, it, or hard enough to crack that it's not practical or possible to do it. And so I'm wondering, do, do we, if Apple carries through on its plans to essentially black box the device and the, the cloud-based extent information associated with the device, are we really setting up this idea that everybody should have access and it should be common for everyone to have access to essentially absolute privacy? And I, 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 I'm totally in favor of that. I love that idea. Um, but it does seem to me that that might actually be something that hasn't really come up before. Well, it certainly hasn't come up in in this way where we could, you know, make notes to ourselves and have have our own documents that no one else can see. Yeah. I would say that what's what's really different um, than really having a black box around it is that most of what we're talking about are communications that have two ends, mm-hmm. and so you know we could protect the text, but they go to somebody else too, and we can't protect. You know, we have no control over what the other end does with their text. Yep. Yeah, somebody can always testify or... Or their phone wouldn't be protected. Maybe they're on a totally different kind of device or they don't use the encryption. But it's it's also sort of bringing back towards the old school um, ways of data collection and how we used to store things that we used to be able to destroy things. Right. It used to be that we had a file cabinet full of you know, damning records and we could shred them, think Arthur Anderson. We could burn them and we could do things with them where we can't anymore. Our email, you know, forget it. There's no way you're getting rid of an email. Like, mm. It is going to exist out there somewhere and there's nothing we can do about it. What Apple's talking about doing, really, as you describe it, brings it back around so that technology mimics old school pen and paper that we could destroy. It gives us that level of privacy. I like that way of thinking about it. I, You know, the one thing we didn't bring up that somebody's going to jump in on the comments and tell us about is um, that it sounds like the FBI created its own problem here because in the days after the attack, they had the phone and they actually reset the password, which stopped the phone from backing up to iCloud, which is why there's no backup for after October now, see, I had heard a slightly different spin on it that it was the, the County of San Bernardino who could have stopped this from happening. Yeah, but I, but it would. I think they reset it at yes, but they reset it at the request of the FBI or something. Okay, yeah. that would make sense. Um, well, that so, will be very interesting to see what Apple's um, response to the motion to compel is, because that would be an argument that I would certainly make if I were representing Apple and totally. had facts to back it up. You know that the the um, the old phrase, I remember this being in an office that I used to frequent I said about, you know, um, your failure to plan does not make it an emergency for me, <laughs> something along those lines. You know, that the FBI screw up doesn't make it Apple's responsibility to fix it. No, that's a good, that's a good point. And maybe it's a good place to end. Um, thanks for bringing us up to speed on this Apple versus the FBI thing. And, um, and for engaging in some speculation with me. Uh, it was great talking to you, and uh, we'll if if any of the um, any new materials and new filings come out, we'll make sure and link to them from our post. Okay, thank you so much, Sam. Oh. 
make sure you catch next week's episode of the lawyerist podcast subscribe to the lawyerist podcast in itunes or in your favorite podcast app you can listen to it at lawyerist.com podcast You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.